You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mudsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Uh, today I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Ray Wilson. Now Ray Wilson is surfing royalty. He grew up here in Torquay. Um, he was on the beach at 10 years old when the first ever surfboards were surfed at Torquay Point with fins. Um, a, a real turning point in Australian surfing history Um yeah, the, the Americans bought the first Malibus um, and did a demonstration in conjunction with the Olympic Games down here. And Ray witnessed that. Um, now, that was in 56. And now I think um, Ray, I believe Ray was 10 then. And, uh, and so, you know, speaking to Ray today, that puts Ray, I, I'm having a hazard a guess, in, in his 70s. But the, the, the light in his eyes is still on. He is as cheeky and... Um, and on it as as oh I don't have any any but the you know you, you can tell when someone's really alive he's giving me the nudges in the car you know like giving me a bit of stick uh, I just had a great time with Ray now Ray's really humble you know and you wouldn't you wouldn't know of you know um, we were talking about sailing in the end of the chat and then he uh, when we were leaving he, Ray tells me that he was uh, he won some big accolade in the sailing world um, you know he just wouldn't mention this but I, I'll mention a couple of things Ray was the first Victorian surfing champion um, you know he was invited to surf in the world titles in Sydney in the, in the 60s uh, you know gr- great things um that he's just so humble about and he was just really at the forefront of surfing he was there with the the uh the guys that really took it upon themselves to learn how to make uh malibu surfboards after the americans left and ray had uh did a lot of shaping himself and was always around rubbing shoulders with all the people there who are at the forefront of what is our our life and 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 um way of life today you know connected to the ocean on so many levels and, and connected to nature. When we were driving, um, there was these clouds that I just I wouldn't have noticed them, you know. We're, we're, and we were um, down off the end of Grossman's Road, turning in uh, off the highway there. And uh, and he says, "Oh, look at those clouds there. Um, you know, that that there was, you know, they were telltale to something that was coming." And I was sort of like, I was like, "Oh yeah," you know, <laughs> like wasn't too sure. Sure enough, you know, thirty five minutes later, it was piercing down now I, I would not have thought that the, it would have rained that heavy but anyway um ray also known as germ um is is just a real pioneer and is surfing royalty and i just feel so so glad to have had him on the horse's mouth in the horse's mouth um so i'll throw you into that conversation right now and whoever you are thanks for listening wow wait till you hear two hours of crap a complete and total that's how I think of my life. I grew up with the ocean. I grew up 100 yards away from the ocean. I had a good mum that got me into the ocean. She was wearing the rubber hat and 
So, 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 so to cut you off for a second, Ray, but you said your mum was a really smart lady. Did she grow up here as well? Did she move here with you? She came over here in the boat from England yeah. with her sister. Uh, and they lived in Chelsea. And then mum... My father was a bookmaker and how I ended up in the house in Torquay is that he came home once, they lived on the house right on the corner, and he came home once with a reasonable amount of money and belted my mother. And then Ida's, as it turned out, where I spent most of my life, was on the market at the time. So her and myself went up and uh, she bought that. It was... uh, it was owned by like Ralph Dean, Dean, and she bought that property up there, and then uh, that's where her and I lived for the next thirty-five years. Just near Growlers there, right on the corner. I'll show you later on. We can drive past the house; is still there. Yeah, okay, awesome. And it's got the top floor on it now because Fox Transport is it the big truck? Oh, Lindsay Fox. Lindsay Fox. Yeah. He bought it? He bought it. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, but he put a top section on it. And then after I looked after my cousins, I came back and then somebody came in and just walked, it was just a house, and said, um, had double big fireplaces, back to back. And they said, you could turn this into a restaurant, which I did. Did you? Yeah, and apart from Fisherman's Pier in Geelong, it was probably the best restaurant in Victoria, fish, I fill at steaks. I used to get people ring up from Melbourne saying, I'll be down in an hour and a quarter, can you save me a table? Now, what was it called, Ray? Ida's. Ida's. My mother's name. Okay. And so <clears> you, <throat> you, were, you were close with your mum. Your mum was um, really supportive of you and your surfing and everything like that. Yep. Yeah. And so you went to primary school here in Torquay. Yep. And were you part of doing stuff with the ocean at primary school? Was it a... Yeah, just going down the beach and playing down the beach when I was <clears throat> when I was a kid. And then what happened was when I was about... Uh, I didn't like school, I used to just go surfing. I left when I was about 16 and then somebody rang up <clears throat> Townsend Road, Whittington, uh, and said, would Ray like to come and make surfboards with me? Hold on, I want to back this up a little bit. What was? What, do you remember the first time you saw someone surfing and thought, Fuck. Well, they had the longboards, the 16-footers at the yeah. surf club in Torquay. Yeah. But the first time I saw people actually surfing on short boards yeah. was when the Americans came out here for the... Uh, they had the world titles in Manly, but they had a corresponding international surf life-saving competition in Torquay and three or four of those blokes came down and surfed in them. That's when I got got the, the new short eight-foot balsa board. So tell me, do you remember thousands and thousands of people on the beach for that event? That was in conjunction with the Olympic Games, right? Every street in Torquay was chock-a-block with people. That is amazing. There in 1956. Be, there had to have been... 25 to 30,000 people all around the place. Every street in Torquay was booked out. You couldn't get a park spot. I can remember it clearly. Do you, do you know what, what, how much of a pivotal moment in history that day was? For me personally. 
And for surfing. For just surfing in general because it introduced so many people to shortboard surfing. That was what introduced us and then and then that we would they went on to oh some of the guys are in the surf club. Vic Tander made my first surfboard out of Bolthwood, eight foot board, and then Jeff White and Terry Wall, Professor Terry Wall. <laughs> um, we all got the shit the surfboards, the short ones, and then we made us so much more manoeuvrable about what we could do on a board instead of standing out and going straight lining yep. from out the back into the shore. We could actually do turns and then... How, was, how exciting must have that been? You must have been stoked. Oh, it was... With the shape board that I had, which yeah. was quite loose, Yeah, I could go and, and surf like... That's why I ended up... Hmm, uh-huh. Very manoeuvrable and yeah. goofy foot. They're all the waves around the place were goofy foot's paradise. Now, do you remember like thinking, okay, well now we can turn these things, uh, and looking down the reefs at just all the all the opportunities that probably weren't there beforehand with the toothpicks. Exactly. Yeah, that's all those breaks that it was very difficult to to surf. All of a sudden, it opened the doors to to surfing Janjak and places like that. Who on the longer boards is very difficult. But when you got on a board that was only balsa wood, eight foot long, round tail, quite manoeuvrable, I, I thought that was a, a revelation for me because it loosened up my whole life. And, and so, when who who were your close mates with at this time surfing with? Um, they were local blokes that um, a lot of them came with their parents came down from Ballarat and Melbourne and that and stayed in the Torquay Caravan Park and all the blokes that, that I knew at that stage we all surfed together and that's how we started surfing at Point Danger and places like that Yeah. We'd, most of the time they'd only be surfing with probably two or three blokes you, in the water. Yeah, you would have been happy to see someone in the water. Oh, many times I've gone looking for some friend of mine around Torquay. So I didn't, because I didn't want to go and surf outside with Point Danger by myself. Yeah. Hence you had a, if you lost your board, you had a 500 metre swim. I didn't worry about sharks because the water was probably too cold for a start off. And I think the chances of getting grabbed by a, ch- a shark, you've got probably more chance of winning Tats Lotto. Do, do you ever remember um, hearing stories of Yady shooting at sharks from the surf club? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 he did, he fired shark guns out from out the veranda of the talking surf club <laughs> and he used to do all those he was a, he played the trombone and uh only Aitman's big fat brass yeah and uh, they used to do some pretty good ra- radical things in, in those days they'd go around and then say there'd be five or six girls staying in the caravan park they'd just go around with a knife and 12 o'clock at night and cut the ropes of the thing and the tent would just fall over <laughs> but but they, they were, these men that they were my mentors because 
okay, they knock off whatever they were doing, but they went in the water and they spent most of their life. These are all the blokes that I met that I met through the Torquay Surf Club and that and going out and getting themselves into the ocean. These are the blokes who they were my mentors because they might have drank a bit of alcohol after seven o'clock at night with Boot Hill. But during the day from seven o'clock in the morning until four o'clock in the afternoon, their main focus was just what they were going to do with the ocean. And that was the way I grew up with that, using those blokes. And all, all these blokes that, uh, that were that my mentors uh, and that I learned from them. Plus, uh, if, if there was surf somewhere, uh, my mother would go down to Cozy Corner and there's a thing in that article about don't go out the back because it's, you know, the surf could be too big. Stay around on the shore break, mm -hmm. quote, unquote. Mm -hmm. But when you're 16 years old and you got a bit of that, not many things tended to frighten us. So we just went out. If we'd sit out at Point Danger and you'd, you'd come back the next morning and it'd be four foot bigger than it was the day before, you just go, whoa, yeah. it's now eight foot. Yeah, yeah. But that's really fear didn't come into it. It was like you'd focus on where the wind was blowing offshore and, oh, yeah, I can go over and surf that left-hander there. Yeah. Now, so, were, you, were you surfing with um, Peter Troy? Yeah. Yeah. Peter Troy was the man. He had a news agent in Torquay. He had a Ford mainline light blue and he took me around to Bell's Beach first we surf around with Peter Troy surf around at, at Bell's and that and uh, quite a few times and then another time when it was smaller and that and there was a little right hand peeling off at Winky Pop and we surfed at Winky Pop when it was about three foot high and then he introduced me to uh, when we had the Endless Summer surf movie that went around to Brighton and all the picture theatres around the place. I went with Peter Troy and we went around to all the picture theatres and, and showed Endless Summer. So was Peter Troy showing the movie himself? Yeah. How fun. Yeah. And that's another thing that had... Endless Summer had such a huge influence on people's attitude towards what surfing was all about because in Endless Summer they surf many countries and that's why Peter Troy went and travelled overseas. Oh, it was his inspiration from the Endless Summer. In inspiration and he went and travelled through all these countries and introduced surfing to, you know, France and Brazil. And, and places like that because they didn't, they weren't into it. They didn't really, surfing is, was not like in Australia because we're surrounded by ocean. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's really something because like for me growing up, I was, vi I'm really visually driven and I always saw pictures of surfing and just was like, oh my God, that's it. Yeah. But you were just with the ocean and then introduced and sort of had to find your own way and never, you know, you created those, so to speak. And I suppose until Endless Summer, it would have been hard to get an essence of the life you were living. 
That's right. That's what uh, we we just were fairly localised about what where we went and what we did. If it was small at Torquay, I'd walk around the corner and up the hill and go around the Janjuk, which was only probably three foot, but it was blowing offshore. That was my small picture. Yeah. That was in my life. And then movies like The Endless Summer and The Angry Sea, I think it's called, um, that introduced me to the possibility that there could be surf all around the world. Yeah. And that was a big eye-opener for me. It was the same as travelling overseas and going to countries when I went overseas and travelled overseas. I wanted to learn about the culture of other people, like I said, and Brazil and France and Germany and and places like that and go to Scotland where it was like really cold and then it was like a B&B type thing and and there was a little, you know, knock on the door and I thought you might like a cup of tea and that sort of thing and the the people in England and Scotland, uh, they were very, very nice people. Um, Travelling's so good for the soul and, and expanding your mind to other points of view and different, you know, you don't have to be locked into one way of thinking. And it was also lucky with the fact that we didn't realise at the time how lucky we were that we were living in a country that was, A, surrounded by water, ocean, and nobody wanted to harm us, which was very important for somebody who was going through countries like the difference between West Berlin and East Berlin. I went from West Berlin through Checkpoint Charlie, walked over the border over there, and then as soon as I walked through the Checkpoint Charlie, every 50 yards there was a bloke standing near with a machine gun. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit over. Frightening. I didn't last very long there. I was only there for a couple of hours and then I came back into West Berlin. You could feel the fear? Yeah. You could feel it. You could see it in people's faces. Right. They were they're walking around the, the, the streets in, in East Berlin. You could see it in their eyes. Did it make you feel sad? a little bit... They felt they were very bit uncomfortable. They were all paranoid about they didn't want to do anything no, no. wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did it make you feel sad to see people living like that? It did because yeah. I talked to a couple of people who were going to buy a camera and they'd been saving up for a long time to buy a simple thing like a camera. Mm. And if somebody came walking down the street with a machine gun on, they'd just put their head down and pretend they were doing something else. And I didn't oh, like that attitude yeah, no. at all. And I was very quick to get out of the place. So you left East Berlin. What is this, You said the early 70s that was? Yep. And so when you left East Berlin and having that experience, where, where did you head to next? From East Berlin, I travelled through a few other countries and then I went down to Greece. And the Greece was something that I could actually relate to because it was warm water that Mediterranean colour, uh, the people were very nice and I ended up getting a job with some people. The, the wife spoke very good English. So I ended up getting a job 
with those people for about three months as a waiter type person and it was a you have to imagine it was a top floor second floor and down on the ground floors where all the tables were and we took the food and uh, the wife said to me one day big ship came in about 100 250 foot long and she said to me can you go down and uh, take those people's order so I went down there and there was this big ship parked out there and I gave took their order and then when I went back upstairs she said to me that's Aristotle Onassis's sister and I'm trying to add it up and there was she was there and three other people the 250 foot yacht parked out the front and I'm thinking to myself who was somebody that was living on two thousand dollars <laughs> I'm surrounded by they were literally billionaires wow billionaires but they were just the same as me they were very interested in how I grew up in Torquay and my relationship with surfing and stuff like that and they got me to sit down and I talked to them how amazing! For three quarters of an hour at least, uh, about they were interested in my life, about how I grew up and yeah. how what I did in my life. Yeah, and I never questioned. Uh, they never questioned about not having this or not having that. They were very interested in the fact that my life was quite simple. And what were you doing in Greece from Australia? Would have been a big thing back then, would it? Yeah, you yeah. know, I said to them, well, I got to a certain age, 21, 22, and I decided to to make the decision to go and travel around different places around the world. And Can I ask, what was what was the catalyst? Was it endless summer that made you want to go travel or just no, you know, get out talking? No, just, just I wanted to go. Because I got that inspiration from my mother because she was the one that introduced me into surfing when I was young mm. and she had the foresight to realise there was always an alternative way of doing something when it came to my mum. And years later... What a great influence she, she was. Well, she was the one that drove me all the way up to Manly to go on the world titles and she stayed in a guest house and I stayed in the Manly Pacific Hotel and... So what? What? So is, was that before you went travelling, or after was yeah. the world titles? Before? No, this was after. Okay, I so, you, so you came back from Greece, yeah. and kept surfing, yes, and was and and so uh, you'd started. You did the the first Bell's Beach board rally. You were surfing yeah, that. Yeah, with Peter Troy and Vic Tanner and those those guys. They organised that with a card table on the beach, and then when somebody came out of the water, they'd write the score down for the next heat. So it was very, very simple <laughs> compared to last time Bells was the bells good. The Bells and Whistles. Last time Bells was okay. Bob Johnson's car park was full and there was probably 10,000 people around there and they put up the scaffolding and they do the whole thing. So It's a circus. Just, I don't know whether you is the correct term to, to call it a circus, but it's just very, very popular as an alternative to other sports. Mm. You, you know, your aerobic system keeps going. 
when you come out of the water, you talk to people about, oh, did you see that wave that I got before? You don't talk about anything else. And if it's blowing offshore in the morning, you get up and you, you go down to Point Danger or somewhere and just go surfing with, with somebody and then and you tend to eat well like we talked about before if you surf and it consume that energy uh, you're feeling pretty good a, it was either a one banana trip or a two banana trip <laughs> <laughs> down, down to the beach yeah yeah and, and so it must be mind-boggling to to have been and witnessed that you know when you had a card table on the beach Mm. and then to seeing where it is today with the th- tens of thousands of people, you know, you never would have had the... You never had the picture of what that was going to be like many years later. Yeah. You never had that idea that, that it was going to be um, as popular around the whole world as what it ended up being. And that's why people like Peter Troy with such a big influence on on an international level about how the surfing progressed from through that one decade in the started really in the 50s to the, through the 60s and and then the, the 70s and to what we've got today where it's probably the biggest sport in the world as far as participation, exercise and, and good health for yourself. Like I said, I've had broken thumbs and broken this from playing football. I've only been whacked in the forehead once, a surfboard and then fell over, went over the reef at, at Southside and got a scar on my back, which is still there. But apart from that... So you opened yourself up on you the really reef really yeah. come close to nearly drowning a couple of times, but that's... You know, you know you're, there's got to be air there somewhere. Now, listen, smoking was pretty popular back in the day. Did you ever...? You couldn't smoke. You couldn't smoke and surf at the same time. Not at the same time, of course, no. Well, you just didn't yeah. do it anyway because it interfered with your lung capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most of the friends that I, I knew growing up in Torquay... Um, most of them didn't smoke at all. Now, um, you know, so you surfed in the board rally and then um, do you remember who... Did Terry Wall win that first board rally? Do you remember who won that? He could have. I know Terry Wall and Jeff White were there. The first Bells Beach. Well, there was a chap called... He lived in um, Manly just around the corner from the Manly Surf Club, Glenn Ritchie was his, was his name. And he he came down to Bells Net and I think from memory, I think Glenn Ritchie could have won the first Bells. I'm not sure whether he was, was a it senior. Was it a junior? Junior. He could have been a junior because I think I was too. And Glenn Ritchie, Glenn Ritchie used to come down to Bells and then... Uh, Midget Farrell he used to come down the, when he first came down as well in his, in his combi van and parked his car out the front of my mum's house. Yeah. And that's and then I uh, and then many years later I went up to Sydney and stayed up there because it was cold here during the winter time and I went up 
and ended up working for blokes like uh, Scotty Dillon and Gordon Woods in Harbord Road and making surfboards. Yeah, yeah. As well, working there during the summer, uh, winter time. And then Scotty Dillon came in the door one day, he said, Never been six foot and perfect. So Bob Pike was another one. He was another big, he's like Tony Ray. Bob Pike was a big wave, big wave surfer. Yeah. So I can remember we all dropped everything down and went to North Narrabeen and surfed North Narrabeen at about solid six foot, which was uh, which was good. That was uh, I can remember that quite clearly. I can remember that quite clearly. How awesome! Oh yeah, it was really good. The left hand had peeled off, you know, six foot. And so. Um, was it your first trip? Was it the world titles going to Sydney? Was that the first time you've no, been there? No, I used to go up there prior to that, but mainly up the uh, up the east coast. And we went over to Phillip Island a couple of times. Then myself and a friend of mine went up the east coast and surfed at Angari and, and places like that, going up the coast, and then came back. And we used to stay up there during the winter time, and then we'd come back. You surfed Angari in what year was that? That must have been like a paradise. There was nobody there. There's three or four blokes in the water. That's where Nat Young lives now, I think. I think so. I yeah. think he does. Yeah. Did uh, you love did you love that wave? Yeah, it was good good right hander on yeah. the back end. It yeah. was a bit a bit um, Yeah, it was a bit gutsy, but <laughs> <laughs> And Crescent Head was another place I went to, stopped off at Crescent Head. That was a really nice right-hander that peeled off yeah. for two or 300 yards. And that, that was... Did you ever think, oh, I'm going to move up here, it's warmer? Yeah, you do, because your cold water is okay. But then, then the crowd started to come into it. And then you figured out that if I stay here and surf in Victoria, I'm not going to have the crowd, but I can put up with the cold water. Yeah. And that's the way it is for many people down here because as soon as you go up, the further north you go, the more crowded it gets. You go to Surfers Paradise now, 6 o'clock in the morning, and there's 50 guys in the water. Yeah. So you put up with the cold water and you put up with the, everything else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, you can tell me to piss off here now, but I'm reckon a mate of yours, Mark, is telling me that you and him got in a bit of strife when you were kids um, and you might have been... Uh, Maybe trying to forge some sort of something and pull one over the banks. Oh, yeah, we did that. Yeah, that, that, that went over like a lead balloon too. That didn't work. So, yeah, that was all right. It was just one of those things you learned you learned the hard way Yeah. about those sort of things. Uh, but that was all right. Bit and of fun? That, yeah, yeah, bit of experience. Yeah. Uh, but who hasn't had trouble in their life one way or another. Oh, I spent a couple of nights in the clink for, uh, you know, drunk and disorderly. Yeah, well, that's right. You yeah. and five million other people. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my other claim is I rolled my car in Bell Street one night. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Did you? In yeah. Bell Street in Torquay? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was with alcohol was, involved? Yeah. That was when Goldie had um, a surf rider. Oh, yeah. And yep. the tree out the front in the middle of the road, I took it out. He <laughs> <laughs> was, wasn't happy. <laughs> you know, <no> Goldie. 
Um, so anyway, so go, going back, we digress. What was it like to be? Um, was it a good feeling to have been, um, you know, asked to go to Sydney as part of the, you know, a representative of Australia? Oh yeah, of course, because we never got asked to do anything as part from it then. And then all of a sudden, they we had a, a Victorian state team that represented the state of Victoria, you know. To, that's a pretty big deal for anybody mm. to to do that type of thing and then to go up to there and then realise when you get there that the Sydney area surfing was a lot more popular than what it was down here and to have all those people come into the that particular area just to go and see a surf contest. I mean, there was th- thousands of people on the beach. Yeah. you feel like a rock star? No, not really. Oh, come on, Ray. No, I, I found it, you know, it was a case of <laughs> head down. Had a job to do. Work, walk your way through the, the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and who, who stood out in your mind back then? Surfing-wise? Well, anything-wise, yeah. Surfing or... Surfing-wise? Well, all those people I spoke about, you know, Midget Farrelly and Nat Young and... Uh, I can't think of the guy's name. And Glenn Ritchie. Yeah. Uh, these type of people, because that's all they did. They were really progressive. Yeah, and Scotty Dillon, who I worked for in Harbord Road, uh, uh, they were... A big influence on on me too, because their priority in life was a little bit of work and a lot of surfing, mm-hmm. depending on what it was like. Mm-hmm. Did Russell Graham was he glassing up there at that time? Because didn't Russell spend some time in Sydney glassing or learning? Oh, he might have. I don't know yeah. actually, John. I'm not sure. Yeah, he could have. Yeah, uh, I think for some reason I have that in my mind, but. Um, and so, do you think that surfing has is, is enriched your life beyond what a normal life might have been? I think so, because I could have ended up a motor mechanic <clears throat> with me doing some, something else that had to do with it. But through surfing, that, that was the catalyst that got me into making surfboards with John Saffron. Oh, you, make, you used the make boards as well? Yeah, with John Saffron. Yeah. And he had a heart attack surfing at Ocean Grove. And uh, uh, myself and Terry took over the, his in, in business and then uh, his Ballerine Marine was the place that took... Uh, he bought all the equipment and Terry and I worked for him for a while. And... Uh, but the, the introduction into surfing was, like I said, was via the surf clubs yes. at the time yeah. in Torquay because surf clubs were like like nippers now. They, you go down to a carnival where they have nippers and there's got to be 500 kids on the beach. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that type of thing. So I, the way I look at life is... If you introduce any kid at a young age into the ocean and 
it can save not only their life, but they'll be in a position, position one day where they have the ability to save somebody else's life. Mm. And that's what nippers and surf clubs and that are all about, being, <clears throat> being able to have the ability to uh, save somebody else's life, which I've been lucky enough to do a couple of times, once in Bali. What, um, what happened there? Oh, it was just a bloke, he couldn't swim very well and he just went out a little bit further than what he was supposed to go out. And it was only about 75, 80 metres off the shore, but if they can't swim, they can't swim. That's the end of that. And he started going up and down and starting to struggle a bit. So I handed him a passport to some lady I didn't know and swam out about 75, 80 metres and, and grabbed this guy and helped him get back to the beach. It was unfortunate because I was going home in, in a week's time I think I could have lived off that family for about three months. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> because they were very appreciated of the fact that I'd saved the father's life. Yeah. So um, did you, you went over there surfing? Yeah. And what year was that? <sighs> Roughly. 72, 73, 74, there's hardly anybody people surfed there then. What were the ways that you were surfing then? No, that right hand that peels off forever. Uluwatu? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, hardly anybody in the water. There was no buildings up on the hill. There's only up that... The, mo- the church or monument the or monument temple? up on the top of the hill up there. T- temple? Yes, it's the temple, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and apart from that, there so wasn't what was many. the food like then? What you know? Good, good, really good. Yeah, the, f- the food was really Balinese people. Uh, they keep like the Greeks. They keep life very simple. Their food was okay. The people are nice, and if you're polite to them and, and bow and say hello to all the people. They they'll reciprocate and do the same thing for you, and they're very. And so, very where were you nice staying? Thing. We just stayed in the little four walls, because um, it was warm temperature. Yeah, you just slept on a like a thing pole at one end, and a bit of thing of canvas in the middle, and yeah. you slept on that. Uh, and got up was only a. Four or five hundred metre walk down to the to the ocean. I oh, say so you're close to Uluwatu yeah. as well. Dayu is or Dayu Dayu is called. That's a pretty special experience. Yeah, and and that um, yeah, and when my daughter many years later said to me, oh, "Dad, I'm thinking of going overseas," I said, "Come on, Emma, off you go." And she did a similar thing to me. Went and travelled through a lot of places in Europe. And now she lives in Port Hedland with her husband and three kids. But that's all transfixed in, fixed in her head now. Yeah. She's very glad the fact that she did what she did. Yeah. When she did it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always telling people, don't wait until you're 45 or 50. Do it when you're 21. Go and do it right now. Where well, you can sleep in rougher spots. 
Yeah, you can. He's a bit, bit more robust. It's not so precious. Yeah, that's right. You know, you get different. The older you get, the less you want to make life hard for yourself. Yeah. yeah. You're better off doing it the hard way first. <laughs> yeah. And then you can get in the get in the bus and go down the Great Ocean Road and look at the Great Ocean Road from out, from inside the bus. <laughs> <laughs> And get out every now and then and have a cup of tea. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty exhilarating to smell, see the sights. Um, and so, what other did, did you do? You went to Bali and you did the big trip when you went travelling, obviously through yeah. Europe. What other? I went to did? Java across the, the the across to Java uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Went over there, and um, I was coming back in a. It was like there was a big religious festival on at the time and you couldn't get a room anywhere and there was a big Navy boat parked out the front and the guy who was the captain of that ship... Was it like a US Navy boat or...? No, Indonesian. Oh, Indonesian, yeah. And he came into the area sitting where I was sitting... And uh, cut a long story short, he said, look, I've got this room here. You can have that room. And I'll go back on the ship. So he went back on the ship and I had this room to myself for three days. And then he came back and I... I the, well, I forgot what they call it now, some religious thing they do over there. Is it when that no one works and they burn the incense on the streets? Yeah, and they yeah. travelled to different places, so every bus was full of people. Is it not Ramadan? I think that's Islam. Islam. Anyway, one of those things that. Or is it that Jewish? I'm so everything was booked out. Yeah. You couldn't get on a bus. People hanging off every bus that went past. Oh no! Well, Java's Islam, Islamic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and Balinese are Hindu. Hindu. So there, there is a divide there. So you might be, might have been, you might have been right. Yeah, you yeah. could have been one of those two. But anyway, you couldn't get, <laughs> you couldn't get, a, you couldn't get a bus. There was ten people hanging off every bus that went past. And so were you over there exploring waves? No, I just, just went over there to have a look. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, do you remember the? Do you remember Vietnam War? I do. I I uh, had a friend that I grew up with uh, surfing in Torquay, and he. Got as he ended up doing a course and was a second lieutenant, and he, he went to Vietnam as well, and um, he spent a year and a half there in Vietnam. A year and a half. And because he was a second lieutenant, so he was, and that had a, a, a profound effect on him, too. After because it was that thing about trust. In what, in what way? Well, you couldn't trust any of the people. You didn't know whether they're on your side or the other side. Or I've been Vietnamese, whether they're like BC or, or, or yeah, North. Yeah. Or, yeah. And that had a large effect on a lot of Australians and New Zealanders that went to Vietnam. Were you nearly of age to have been in well, the... I could have yeah. gone, but I didn't. my number didn't get pulled out of the oh, barrel. Oh, you were lucky. So myself and another guy... Uh, Ian Opperman, his dad was the High Commissioner for Malta, so Hubert Opperman. Uh, so Ian and I didn't get pulled out, and the other two blokes, they did 
they got pulled out and they went to, they went to, went to Vietnam and they just went as a normal soldier type thing and many years later they both ended up alcoholics. Did, 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 you, did everyone know at the time that there was like a farce? You know, like it wasn't a war that probably shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened. They didn't know at the time, but they found out later on that they were fighting a losing war mm. because the the North Vietnamese were not going to give up. No, did you ever see? There's a fa- an amazing documentary um, Ken Burns did on Vietnam. It's a ten part series. It gives a really good explanation. It shows how the French were in there before. Yeah you know, that war even started. So they had been fighting for That's right. 10 years already primed. That's right. You know... Those, the, the Vietnamese knew what they are going to do before they even had to do it. Yeah. And did you know, I didn't know this, that Ho Chi Minh actually liked America. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... And the Americans might have... Yeah. ...said or done the wrong thing. Well, at some point, I think he had to choose his country over... Yes. <clears throat> you know, and the Americans couldn't quite see that, yeah, they were as basically, it was, what was it, communism versus the West through one country, through the that, eye of a needle. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah. as far as Australia was concerned, it's probably a war that we should have had not much to do with it. Because the, if we had realised at the time, there was a a war that nobody was going to win. And they ended up, the Americans just packed up everything and, and left billions and billions of dollars worth of equipment just sitting there doing nothing. You've seen the doco where they push helicopters off the end of the yeah. aircraft carrier. and uh, What a total waste of money that was when for a war that they had realised at the time they were not going to win it. And the lives they may as well have been just pushing off the end of that boat. And the lives that they were going to... Like I said about my friend that went to Vietnam, that affected him for for many years later because it was that trust thing. Um, Did he lose faith in the Australian government for going or was it more just... I don't think it was so much the Australian government, but he realised that at the time that the, a lot of the Americans were there, they were either dropping bombs from 30,000 feet up in the air or they were sitting around smoking ash. That was what the picture that Australians and New Zealanders had got. Mm. If you look back through it, they were the ones right back through history, Australians and New Zealanders. Side by side. Anzac. Anzac, exactly. And that's why it's commemorated so large all around this country and New Zealand, Papua New Guinea as well, where they got, you know, they put them into places where it was hard work. Is that the Kokoda Trail? Yeah. Yeah. New Guinea and places like that where... Uh, a lot of people uh, died from malaria. Yeah, and dysentery. And dysentery yeah. and that type of thing, you know, because the humidity was... Was that part of the Korean War? I don't think so. 
I get so confused with what, like, because the Korean War. I don't think it was part of the Korean War. That's a different war, though, too. New Guinea was post-Second World War, it might have been. I'm not too sure about that one. Yeah, I'm not either. I, I don't know, and we digress a little bit, but that's okay. Um, now, were you knock, knocking about with, uh, was it M.O.? Jeff Emerson. Yes. Yeah, yeah. M.O., yeah. yeah. He was a, a, a giant man, I believe. He was a big man. Yeah. Jeff M.O., he used to go out fishing with Yady. Right. With Jeff Emerson and Owen Yateman. Yeah. They'd go out fishing, and he was, uh, Yady and Jeff Emerson were the, another two people that introduced me into going be, out beyond the beach because I was down there one day at Torquay and I went out when Yady went out to pick up the cray pots. Yes, yeah. So I went out with him and we picked up the cray pots when you had to just pull them up by hand. And um, so Yady and Jeff Emerson and his... He's a huge bloke, wasn't he? Big man. Big man. Yeah. yeah, like there's another bloke called... Well, both of them would have been pretty big. I believe Yady was a big guy too, Yady right? Yady was a big, big big bloke too, yeah. But Emma was a big, big bloke. Yeah. So, like I said before, they were the people that uh, that introduced me to, literally going out into the ocean when he picked out the cray pots. So did you used to go on Yady's boat, Round of Bells? Um... No, most of the time when we went around to Bells, we just went by car. Uh-huh. That, that road that goes around to Bells used to be a Cobb & Co road. Right. That's where they dropped off the mail and they went around to the places uh, and dropped off the mail at the RMBs. So you know the mine that's out at Jar- the Jarosite Mine? Yeah. Was that operational Jaros- when you were younger? The mines around that area there, that's where a lot of the Aboriginals got all their colours, the ochre. Oh, really? colours. If you look around around Anglesey and Torquay, you'll see the different colours all around the place. And that's what the Aboriginals used to do to put it on their face. And their the, paint. The, the, the thing with the Aboriginals was that as we came into our summer in Victoria, they'd come down the coast and they'd spend the summer down here there's a thing called a mitten. I remember surfing down near Point Addis one day and there was a big mitten and that's where the Aboriginals would get the little shells off the beach and they'd, they'd eat the shells. And then as it got colder and colder, they'd go back up the coast, right up to walking. southern New South Wales. So back up past Mallacoota and... Yeah, and they'd walk the whole way. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. For them to walk a thousand miles was not much at all. And now here, up around that area, around the border there, there's waterways that have been like perfectly put in with the the, the uh, landscape by the Aboriginal communities back back in the obviously well, for a millennia before we were doing it, and they could trickle water all over the place, and it was a really intricate system that they had there. Have you heard about this? No. No, but I think it, it showed that they were way more complex than ever given credit for. Well, it's like the Chinese and the Egyptians, that they were inventing things for thousands of years before the Europeans thought about it. Yeah. How did the Chinese work it with the rice paddies? And how did the Egyptians figure out to get a 200-tonne block of... 
How did they, Ray? To the top of the pyramid. How do you know? Uh, the pyramids still have my brain. They don't know now. They know how they got certain sections of it with water and making canals, uh, the big pieces, but how they got a 200-tonne block of wood, a uh, block of concrete or whatever it was made yeah, out yeah, of. Yeah. You, you to know, the top of a pyramid, they still can't figure out how they did that. So do you know that all the pyramids, right, you've got those pyramids there that we know of, and then you've got some other pyramids in Central and South America. You got, I think they've yep. shown up in China. Um, that they, they all point to the same point in the solar system that can only you can't see with the naked eye. So yeah. it's scientifically uh, calculated. They're not not it's not haphazard. So let me. I'm drawing a long bow here for you. Go with me. Do you reckon there was help from an external source? Like maybe from space. Are you picking up what I'm doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it was partly as the fact that they they learnt because they revolved their life around the sun. Yeah. And they knew exactly when it was, what time of the year it was, and what time this was happening, the difference between summer and winter. When they could play, when they could grow crops, that's how they introduced uh, a lot of those people that build the pyramids. That they everybody thought there was slaves with the big whip and did all that. Well, from what I've seen and read about it, it wasn't like that at all. They got the farmers from all around the area, and they grew their own crops. So they actually filled, fed. The people that built self-sustaining the pyramids. It yeah. was self-sustaining. It was none of this cracking the whip, right stuff. Yeah, Indiana uh, Jones sort of uh, like. Yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't Indiana. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't Indiana Jones stuff at all. Yeah. The Egyptians figured out that if they want to build something like this, they're going to have to get people from around all around the area to help them. So they grew the crops, they fed the people, they built the pyramids. And that was the way it was. And, yeah, I find them fascinating. Um, and I just always am like, did they live in the pyramids? Were they homes? Were they... They had their homes and stuff like that there. Yeah, all off campus. They fed them. Yeah. And did you see them when you did your travels? I didn't go to Egypt. Did you hear that before they were like sandstone-looking things, they were actually covered in marble? Apparently, that's what happened, but it all got pinched. That's right. Now that, that, that would have probably come from Italy, which is probably the biggest marble place in the world. If you want to buy, get a table this size, and you want to have a good quality marble, it's going to cost you a fair bit of money. <laughs> because that's where a lot of the marble came from throughout the whole of Europe. And at that point, from Egypt to other parts of Europe, it wouldn't have been that difficult for them to get marble. Like everything else, right. they would have floated it, like the Suez Canal. Uh-huh. They f- dug channels and they floated everything. And that's how a lot of those things... But still, the point was, how did they get <laughs> a 200-tonne to the top of the pyramids? They still don't know how they got that up there. Oh, I just love these mysteries. It's just... I love them. 
it's going to be a big block and tackle. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me, um, John Pawson. Yes, I was. I remember John. His father owned a hotel in Torquay, and John. Was that fun? Uh, Were you allowed in there underage and stuff? or Where at Porson's Hotel? Yeah. You, well, I didn't drink at the time, but everybody else did. Uh, I can remember when John Porson died, he, the son. Yeah. It's, it's uh, tragic. I remember Bells and that was quite big surf, and uh, from memory he just tried to jump out so he could paddle around to Winky Pop there, and he got caught by a big wave and... And got thumped inside, and um, they found the thing on his head. So he's either a hit his head, or b because of the turbulence that was in the water, he just ran out of air. One of those two. And hit smacked the button. I think I remember going to his funeral. Yeah, everything I hear about John was he was just a hell of a nice guy and just a really good surfer. Yeah. Yep. It's just it's a horrible accident. Yeah, that's right. It just, yeah. And it's always fearful now. Like you know, I, I don't paddle around the button anymore when it's over five foot. I just go off the beach. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. You just get washed down the valley. Well, a bit. I think that's what happened to him. He's going to paddle out and got a wash back and got a thump in the skull. And because it was in turbulence in that area, as you probably know, <clears throat> if you got a whack in the skull, no, yeah, you're not going to uh, know much. You're in eight foot of white water. You're going to be struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to know too much. Well, you hope you don't want to know too much. No. That's right. I just think it's, uh, as I said, I, I did a little bit of <clears throat> teaching people the, to do surfing and, uh, and with nippers. Was that, with, that was with Galley? I did a bit with Galley and... Um, Mick Shan. Mick. Mick. Mick Shan. Yeah. And his wife. Bindi. Bindi. Yeah. I've known Bindi since I was a little kid. Have you really? Yeah. Her little brother Tim and I were great mates back in primary oh, school days. Yeah. 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 They're really nice people. Yeah. 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 yeah I always thought that Bindi was seriously cute. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to make sure she hears this one. <laughs> 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 no, they're beautiful people. So yeah, you, you did a bit of teaching for those guys as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I did it with, with them as well, which is uh, it's good. And did you find that rewarding? Teaching surfing, I did because what I found with teaching people to get involved with the ocean was, I found girls tended to listen to what you were saying. Uh, I used to say to them, just pretend you crouch down behind the the couch and you're going to get out and frighten your parents. So you get down in that crouched position with your arms out and your crouching down <laughs> position and your feet apart like a cricket stance and that's basically the way you should surf when you first go in to start surfing, that low profile. Yeah. Whereas the boys will stand up and go, look at me, and, and there's a 50. 25-pound, 30-pound arm that's going to go over to the left <laughs> and have a guess where they're going to end up. Yep. In the squirt. So I found that girls tended to listen more than the boys at that 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old 
age bracket. You know what I thought we always found was a really good crossover for surfing is boxing because of like the point of axiom, which I never really thought about. As a, if they teach you as a boxer, if you're off and over here, you're an easy knockout and knock over. But if you're centered and over your legs as a spring, hinging from the hips, Muhammad Ali, it, it translates so well to the board because you want to keep that. If you're out here, you're falling over. Exactly. Yeah. Muhammad Ali, you stand here like that and yeah. take it, and then all of a sudden you just go boom, boom, boom. But he's always over the top of his legs. Always. Dead set, yeah. vertically, not too much movement to the left or to the right. It was always protection and you, all that. Do you remember watching him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was like, that was the Muhammad Ali and the boxing and and Graham Kennedy and Melbourne Tonight and all those type of shows that were on TV at the time. You know, it wasn't... Sex in the City, it was... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more soulful, you reckon, Ray? <laughs> <laughs> Not as good to watch, but a bit more, so- a bit healthier for the soul, you think? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, who's up who and who hasn't paid? <laughs> no, I never watched it. I don't watch that rubbish. I watch, you... Star, I watch Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. A, I, I don't mind that because that's semi-science fiction. Well, do you, so you prefer Star Trek to Star Wars? Now, this is the whole thing. Uh, yeah. Because of the, the specificity, the science behind In it. Star Trek, there's more communication with thing and they introduce other people, whereas Star Wars is a little bit... You know, shoot. Imaginative. Airy fairy, kind of like. It could, that, 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 this is what I heard. This was quite good. That Star Trek is really science based facts driven, you know, into a TV show, which is kind of believable. Yeah. And Star Wars could take place in any sort of circumstance. Any universe. Yeah. Yeah. It's not hinging on the laws of science. One of my favourite shows used to be. A movie called The Last Starfighter, where an alien type guy comes down and picks up this kid who used to play this game on the thing, and he takes him from where he's playing this game because he was really good. And he takes him in his little bubble type spaceship thing and takes him back to another planet across the other side of the universe. And teaches him to play this game, but he uses real things, and how he ends up defeating the bad aliens and winning the war. And then he drops him back to where he lived in California, playing the pinball, playing the machine. Right. And he says to the kid, "Well, what are you going to do now? He says, well, would you like to come and we can help and we can save a few more you?" universes as well so the kid goes oh okay hang on a minute I just want to talk to my girlfriend so he goes over and he says to his girlfriend do you want to just stay here and do this for the rest of your life or do you want to go over and then we'll go to another universe somewhere and we'll save a few million people in another universe and she goes oh yeah alright so that's the end of the movie 
What's the movie called? It's called The Last Starfighter. All right, I'm going to have to check it out. That yeah, sounds great. It's quite good. Okay. And um, you like the sci-fi region? Yeah, this type of movie there, this you could some little 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old can sit down and watch this movie, not a problem. Now, do you reckon there's life out there? I've had this discussion with a friend that used to come down to Bruce's surf shop, Jim. Yeah. He was a very intelligent man. And he said he lived in Rochester, New York State. And I asked him the same question. And he said, they probably are, but they've probably been watching us for such a long time and they're still waiting for us to get our thing together. So we can go up and introduce ourselves to them. Um, but up, if you go back through history right up until now, we have learned a few lessons, but in a lot of ways on this planet, we're doing the same stuff we were doing 5,000 years ago. So we have learnt a lot of things, but it could be a, in the, this UFO stuff and all that. There could be. It would take a long time. We'll have to learn how to transport ourselves from where we are right now across to the other far side of the universe to, to get ourselves in position where we can find those beings. Or do you think it's got to do with like how we treat each other and possibility, you know, be less violent society? That's exactly what they're thinking. Yeah. They got a, they're thinking that when we learn how to get along with the other people that live on this such a beautiful planet, yeah. when we learn that, we're going to be in a position where they'll be able to come down and say, we've been watching you for the last 5,000 years. You've come good. What do you think of the, the model uh, that we live on, under with you know, growth, you know, more, more, more people, take, take, take more. And the only way that our society seems to work is on a growth model. Uh, after seeing such big changes, you know, in the last 40 years, especially mm. in the last 15 to 10, you know, you can sort of see that we can't keep going this way. Does that become a Multiplying, you mean? Yes. And just take, you know, with limited resources and nature. And that's and the society we live in. We live in a take society. Throw away this, throw away that. Build cheap houses. Don't care about the rubbish that you throw down the beach. Where's that rubbish going to end up? It's going to end up getting swallowed by some creature Fish from out of the ocean. Yeah. That gets into their stomach, and that's what will kill them. Do you reckon plastic doesn't digest that well? When do you, when are we going to learn, Ray? Do you reckon? That's a very good question. I don't know. When we're we going to learn? We're going to learn one day when the planet gets to the point where it's really struggling. There's going to be so much plastic in this planet. Look around at the oceans, they're everywhere around, the oceans everywhere. It's plastic. It takes a long time to break down. Isn't it weird that, like, 
I feel like we can all see this, but not yet. It's really difficult to broach change or like there's a pocket of people that want to change and they pick up rubbish and they're doing their bit, but well, yeah. And then, um, but then when you, you look at the, the bigger machine behind the picture, it doesn't seem to care, you know? And I, I mean, I don't know, I can go off on this tangent for a bit, but it's just, you know, I think, I don't know what I think. People on this planet have got to realise that they're thinking about here and now. They've got to start thinking about generations, four generations further down and what this planet is going to look like after four generations. That's what people get the short-sightedness about. Mm. They've got to look after my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, in a hundred years' time, what this planet's going to be like. And it's, it's getting to the point where uh, it's very serious. I, I agree. Very yeah. serious because... There's a new David Attenborough documentary out at the moment. I'm not too sure if you've seen it, but he, paint, he paints a pretty stark picture of what he's witnessed in his lifetime now. I think he's 95 now, and it's, the message is really clear. Yeah. You know. Look what they're doing to the Amazon. Yeah, the they're world just over. Ripping what supplies all the oxygen for most of the planet, the Amazon. And they're ripping it down. Thousands of acres get bulldozed yeah. down every week. The lungs of the earth. The lungs of the earth, exactly. The Amazon all they're thinking about is Yeah. 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 It's uh and the, if you if you keep cutting all the trees down and you're making it difficult for the planet to breathe, one day it's going to be struggling to stay alive. Well, as you were saying, like with your lungs, you keep your lungs good for the heavy wipeouts because you want them in top notch when you get that wipeout. You need them most. If we keep taking, we're going to get some wipeout that the Earth won't be able to bounce back from. That's right. The Earth's going to be out of breath. Yeah. And then we're in... Deep trouble. Yeah, and then the shit then. Yeah. And there's the pollution that's around the places. And if you go to countries where they just throw away society, the rivers of plastic that go down the the Amazon and uh, different places around the world, the amount of plastic that goes around the place and... I don't know what's going to happen when it comes to the plastic. I just hope that they figure out one day that we have to seriously do something about helping to save this planet. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we can put nature in front of commerce and I'm not too sure when that's going to happen. Anyway, as you said driving here, Ray, those clouds were... You were saying these clouds that we looked out out the window there were telltale signs of weather exactly. coming in. And it's raining now. You yeah, called right. it. <laughs> you, I was right onto it. You called it. <laughs> so right. I was sort of like wondering. I was like, it's pretty well read. I'm not sure what's going to happen here. And you called it. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a good one. Well, it's from being a sailor too. Oh, a sailor? Yeah. Yeah, I was a sailor. I sailed in the Sydney to New Mere yacht race. Hold on, to where? From Sydney to Newmere. We started in Cryo Bay. We ran around past Eden. Yeah. And went to Sydney and then sailed in the Sydney to Newmere yacht race on a thing called a H28. Newmere? Newmere, yeah. Is that an island <clears throat> near 
Nauru. Yeah, that's on the French too. The yeah, yeah. So, Nubia. like the um, what do you call those islands? Is it the, the Caroline or the Cook? No. Um, no. If you go up to to Brisbane, yeah, um, go straight across from there. <clears throat> that's about where New Mir is. It's 250, 300 miles out the sea from, say, Brisbane. Now, how was that? That was really good. That was on the French. Um, but the sailing, did you get any... Oh, the sailing any... was yeah. good. We had a southeasterly blowing for five days, so we went from... Uh, we sailed up and then sailed across, so we had a prevailing southeasterly wind that does in the wintertime. So we were... We were in a fleet of mm, 35, 40 boats. We were under the French government's shadow. They had a French Navy frigate that shadowed the fleet all the time, and twice a day you had to ring them up and give a skid about where your position was, but it was all good. So um, what? when was that? Whew, the 70. So no GPS, no phones... Just, no, just uh, reading the weather. Compass and watching the weather and reading the, your direction off uh, the stars. See, how, much, star how connected up. you were with nature, living with, you know, that small... I mean, I'm not, I can't speak because I'm not a sailor and I don't know sailors, but I feel like those telltale things that you're talking about now from the sailing that you did without GPS, without computers was so much more in touch with yeah you know the realness you had a compass and you had the stars so you actually didn't have to look at the compass all the time right in north star all you had to do was look at the north star at the moment and just keep an eye on that and keep your heading on that that was your direction north star that was your direction you took you hit any storms? No, not really, because we had prevailing wind for the time we sailed over to New Mir. So a southeast is your optimal south-east wind? Southeast is a lot that blows around that area. Yeah, it's good wind? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, good wind. It's very steady. That's why I had a lot of trouble down here on the coast of Victoria, because if you had a ship <clears throat> that was not like the one we sailed on... Um, who had trouble pointing into the wind, if they got a strong south-easterly like we had the other day, those ships would just get blown sideways and onto the reef. And that's why a lot of parts of Victoria is like the shipwreck coast. Mm. Get a strong south-easterly bone for three or four days and they had nowhere to go. Is that, is that right? So they were good in a westerly pattern, which is the Roaring Forties. Yeah. But as soon as you came around, got these in, easterly wind um, patterns that we get for sometimes two weeks. Yep. You was cooked. Yep. Huh. That's how it worked. So they had trouble getting into the wind. If you got a strong wind and you, even if you had an anchor that was there, um... That would just pull you backwards anyway. Yeah. That's why they ended up on all these reefs around Victoria. And that's something. It was... That's the way it was in Victoria. Like we just had last, the other few days ago. <clears throat> we had a strong southeasterly that blew for three days. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you're 100 miles out to sea. 
you get the same wind blowing for three days, <laughs> you're going to end up on the beach. No ways, no two ways about it. You're going to end up on the beach, and that's the way it was in Victoria. You ever heard the uh, while we're talking about this, the the story of the Batavia? In England, uh, Batavia was English, wasn't it? I think it was Dutch. Dutch. Yeah. Well, the Dutch were another people who were very good at um, um, <clears throat> the Dutch. Who were the with the race of people that sailed different places around the world for a long time before other people did. Yeah. The Dutch were they were born. Well, they were the they were the, the they were the main um, that like they were the, the dominant power of the world at the time. The Dutch were yeah. Um, the Dutch were the people that told the Germans during the war to get stuffed. The Dutch were the Germans, what, say that again? They told the Germans during the Second World War to Take get stuffed. Yeah. <laughs> in what context? In the context that the Germans had a lot of trouble taking over the Dutch. Oh, okay, right. Because yeah. they were strong. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just, there was a, this, this book, The Batavia, is about a shipwreck, the boat. At the time, it was the richest, had the most wealth of any boat that had ever sailed. And what happened is they were they were going to um, the Spice Islands, which was yep. the, not, were they just the Indonesian chain? Jamaican and uh, those brought the spices back. That's how the spices went back to England. That's right, and yep. up to yes, and the spices were the um, there's a lot of money in them. That's right. And so this boat had left because they were setting up uh, a commune uh, a colony near Jakarta, I believe, or somewhere like that in, in Indonesia. Yeah, and they had this route that took them like I don't know, let's just say ten months. But yep. then when they worked out how to use the Roaring Forties off Africa to their um, benefit, yep. they turned that trip from uh, to a four-month trip, yep. which meant you could get there with fresh legs and fresh men. And but anyway, yep. the the story of this boat is they hit an island off Western uh, reef off Western Australia. Yep, oh, that's right. And the mutiny yep. that was happening on board. That's right. It's the most blood-curdling. That's right. It's a real good yes, yarn. That's right. Yeah, real good I read yarn. lots of books about sailing, and that yeah. was, you know, that was... Uh, and see. I can't believe that, that one hasn't been turned into a big movie, because it's... Yeah. And, it, you know, that, that book and that story proves that the Dutch are actually where they beat the English here. That's right. That's right. The Dutch were travelling around different places... For a long time before, yeah, people think thought that you know, oh well, the English discovered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. <laughs> the Dutch were the the ones. Isn't history is so fascinating. I, I I really I love it. If you go around Australia, there's different places around Australia that, okay, they're named after English people, but there's a lot too that are named after the Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of Dutch people around this state. Hookman's places, Dutch origin. Well, I think that there was a um, an English gentleman. I'm not too sure. He was an English explorer after we colonised here, who was look, trekking around Western Australia and came across an Aboriginal tribe, and one of them had um, blonde hair and blue eyes. Yeah. Which. Well, when they went around the Cape, 
they had prevailing winds that came around all the time. And then there was about a five-day period where the current and the wind went the opposite direction. So they had the chance to come down around the corner and round the Cape, South African Cape, I think, and went around there and then colonised around there. And then many years later, they found people that were there and they had blonde hair and blue eyes. That's And that's from the Dutch too? When the Dutch, cha- yeah. the current changed. Yeah. And the wind changed and got, and they got, they were in the position to come around that corner and go up there and they said, this is not a bad place to stay. <laughs> same as Hawaii. Yeah. You know, and same as the raft that they made out of balsa wood. They were trying to figure out how Hawaii in that, they the made Pol- a Polynesians. Big, Polynesians made a big raft out of balsa wood. And they, I'm trying to think of his name, it was called the Ra, I think, R-A. And they made the same thing. They they made I did, they made the same type of thing out of big logs of balsa wood, and tied them all together and tried the same trip, and then they actually did it. So they figured out. Oh, that they, they could could have made that trick. Yeah, made the trap. Yeah, that same trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever make it to Hawaii? No. Yeah, I've never been there either. No, hotels are too dear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I was. I'd like to go to the pipeline in middle of winter time and have a look at the pipeline, see what that was like, and uh, uh, Waimea Bay and Makaha, and have a look at those places in the winter time, and and have a look at those type of things. There's something, there's an allure to it, right? Just to even witness you, you that power. To, it's a bucket list job. Yeah, thing, that's you know? exactly I right. Just want to go there and stand on the beach at the yeah. pipeline. You're only 50 yards away from the guy that's getting crunched. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they have a permanent ambulance at the, at the front of the pipeline. They have one, do they? Permanent, um, yeah, no, no doubt. Oh, it's only five minutes down the road, you know what I mean? Fuck, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, all right, Ray, I'm going to say thank you so much for coming and have a yak to me. That's all right. That's yeah. all right, John. It's been a pleasure. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Ray Germ Wilson. Um, I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I enjoyed chatting to Ray. Um, just, uh, you can just tell, right, by the, the spark in his voice, you know, what a, um, it's just a, a great, great egg, good person to be around is Ray. Um, we're just lucky, you know, and, and, and Ray's had a great life and... Uh, um, you know, I just feel so lucky to be connected into that surfing lineage and, and to be able to talk to people like Ray, you know, just, uh, um, yeah, amazing, amazing. And thank you, Ray, um, if you ever get to hear this. Um, I know Ray doesn't have a mobile phone or a podcast app. Um, he's too smart for that. <laughs> Technology, eh? Anyway, uh, whoever you are out there in the world, I hope you're having a nice day, night, evening, whatever it is. Uh, thank you once again for tuning in. And um, until next time, arrivederci. Arrivederci.